0: This is Chapter Seventy Five of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain, Chapter Seventy Five. The next night was appointed for a visit to the bottom of the crater, for we desired to traverse its floor and see the North Lake of Fire, which lay two miles away, toward the further wall. After dark, half a dozen of us set out, with lanterns and native guides, and climbed down a crazy thousand-foot pathway in a crevice fractured in the crater wall, and reached the bottom in safety. The eruption of the previous evening had spent its force, and the floor looked black and cold, but when we ran out upon it we found it hot yet to the feet, and it was likewise riven with crevices— Which revealed the underlying fires gleaming vindictively. A neighboring cauldron was threatening to overflow, and this added to the dubiousness of the situation. So the native guides refused to continue the venture, and then everybody deserted except a stranger named Marlette. He said he had been in the crater a dozen times in daylight and believed he could find his way through it at night. He thought that a run of three hundred yards would carry us over the hottest part of the floor and leave us our shoe soles. His pluck gave me backbone. We took one lantern, and instructed the guide to hang the other to the roof of the lookout house to serve as a beacon for us in case we got lost. And then the party started back up the precipice, and Marlette and I made our run. We skipped over the hot floor and over the red crevices with brisk dispatch, and reached the cold lava safe, but with pretty warm feet. Then we took things leisurely and comfortably, jumping tolerably wide and probably bottomless chasms, and threading our way through picturesque lava upheavals with considerable confidence. We got fairly away from the cauldrons of boiling fire. We seemed to be in a gloomy desert, and a suffocatingly dark one, surrounded by dim walls that seemed to tower to the sky. The only cheerful objects were the glinting stars high overhead. By and by Marlette shouted, "'Stop!' I never stopped quicker in my life. I asked what the matter was. He said we were out of the path. He said we must not try to go on till we found it again, for we were surrounded with beds of rotten lava through which we could easily break and plunge down a thousand feet. I thought eight hundred would answer for me, and was about to say so when Marlette partly proved his statement by accidentally crushing through and disappearing to his armpits.' He got out, and we hunted for the path with the lantern. He said there was only one path, and that it was but vaguely defined. We could not find it. The lava surface was all alike in the lantern light. But he was an ingenious man. He said it was not the lantern that had informed him that we were out of the path, but his feet. He had noticed a crisp grinding of the fine lava needles under his feet, and some instinct reminded him that in the path these were all worn away. So he put the lantern behind him, and began to search with his boots instead of his eyes. It was good sagacity. The first time his foot touched the surface that did not grind under it, he announced that the trail was found again, and after that we kept up a sharp listening for the rasping sound, and it always warned us in time. It was a long tramp, but an exciting one. We reached the North Lake between ten and eleven o'clock, and sat down on a huge overhanging lava shelf tired, but satisfied. The spectacle presented was worth coming double the distance to see. Under us, and stretching away before us, was a heaving sea of molten fire of seemingly limitless extent. The glare from it was so blinding that it was some time before we could bear to look upon it steadily. It was like gazing at the sun at noonday, except that the glare was not quite so white." At unequal distances all around the shores of the lake were nearly white-hot chimneys or hollow drums of lava four or five feet high, and up through them were bursting gorgeous sprays of lava gouts and gem spangles, some white, some red, and some golden, a ceaseless bombardment, and one that fascinated the eye with its unapproachable splendor. The mere distant jets, sparkling up through an intervening gossamer veil of vapor, seemed miles away, and the further the curving ranks of fiery fountains receded, the more fairy-like and beautiful they appeared. Now and then, the surging bosom of the lake under our noses would calm down ominously and seem to be gathering strength for an enterprise. And then, all of a sudden, a red dome of lava of the bulk of an ordinary dwelling would heave itself aloft like an escaping balloon, then burst asunder, and out of its heart would flit a pale green film of vapor, and float upward and vanish in the darkness—a released soul soaring homeward from captivity with the damned, no doubt— The crashing plunge of the ruined dome into the lake again would send a world of seething billows lashing against the shores and shaking the foundations of our perch. By and by, a loosened mass of the hanging shelf we sat on tumbled into the lake, jarring the surroundings like an earthquake, and delivering a suggestion that may have been intended for a hint, and may not. We did not wait to see. We got lost again on our way back, and were more than an hour hunting for the path We were where we could see the beacon lantern at the lookout house at the time, but thought it was a star and paid no attention to it. We reached the hotel at two o'clock in the morning pretty well fagged out. Kilauea never overflows its vast crater, but bursts a passage for its lava through the mountainside when relief is necessary, and then the destruction is fearful. About 1840 it rent its overburdened stomach and sent a broad river of fire careening down to the sea, which swept away forests, huts, plantations, and everything else that lay in its path. The stream was five miles broad in places and two hundred feet deep, and the distance it traveled was forty miles. It tore up and bore away acre-patches of land on its bosom like rafts, rocks, trees, and all intact. At night the red glare was visible a hundred miles at sea, and at a distance of forty miles fine print could be read at midnight. The atmosphere was poisoned with sulfurous vapors, and choked with falling ashes, pumice-stones, and cinders. Countless columns of smoke rose up and blended together in a tumbled canopy that hid the heavens, and glowed with a ruddy flush reflected from the fires below. Here and there jets of lava sprung hundreds of feet into the air, and burst into rocket sprays that returned to earth in a crimson rain, and all the while the laboring mountain shook with nature's great palsy, and voiced its distress in moanings, and the muffled booming of subterranean thunders. Fishes were killed for twenty miles along the shore where the lava entered the sea. The earthquakes caused some loss of human life and a prodigious tidal wave swept inland, carrying everything before it and drowning a number of natives. The devastation consummated along the route traversed by the river of lava was complete and incalculable. Only a Pompeii and a Herculaneum were needed at the foot of Kilauea to make the story of the eruption immortal. End of chapter 75